Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with Clear Motive Marketing. Full transparency, folks. I am one of the co-founders of Clear Motive Marketing. I have had the privilege and the amazing opportunity to be involved with my current business partner, Chad Croker, since 2010. And it has been a fantastic ride and just an amazing, amazing journey. But I'm coming here today not as a co-founder, but as a client. Over a year ago, I brought the idea of the podcast to the team, presented the challenges, presented the opportunity, presented why I was excited about it, and they worked with me to create a plan. We built a strategy, we built the brand, we built the website, and they helped me execute, and they helped me execute day in and day out as we are constantly going live with, with new, new episodes. They also were a huge help in building the audience, which can be the most challenging things, whether you're a company with a product or a service or just a new idea that you need to get out there. So we've grown organically from over 200 downloads last December to over 2,000 this December, which is an all-time record for the show, something we're really proud of, and I couldn't have done it without the Clear Motive team backing me at every step of the way. They specialize in helping brands that operate in fast-paced, highly competitive industries, which, let's be honest, is is everyone these days, to deliver more consistently and more effectively day in and day out, something that we all know can be an incredible challenge in marketing with the pace of the always-on mindset. With offices and teams in both Calgary and Toronto, they work to make clients better marketers. So if you need a new website, a new brand, or simply a new efficient way to produce and deliver and get your get your creative in market, and get connected with your customers, give us a call and let's have a good old-fashioned chat. Check out our work and our case studies at www.clearmotive.ca. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to Mr. Danny Motika. How are you, Danny? I'm doing great. Thanks, Tyler. How are you? I am really good, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, classic Calgary. I'm not even sure how someone how we conspired to be chatting. I think it was um, Barbara Karashi actually over at UFC connected me to one of your business associates, and then you and I ended up chatting. But let's dive right into it. You're the chief executive officer at SciGen Labs Inc. based here in Calgary. So before we go anywhere, what what is the SciGen Labs, and let's uh, let's have a conversation about it. So SciGen Labs is an aspiring producer of psychedelic medicines. Um, we realized in 2017 and 2018 that there was a growing demand for uh, GMP psychedelic drug products and that there was no real dedicated manufacturer for these products. Um, psychedelic medicines have been a passion of mine and our co- my co-founder, Peter, um, for decades, and we just uh, saw this market opportunity and so decided to start building a business opportunity. And when you talk about let's let's just maybe touch on a little bit. You're, you're you know you're going to also be become the experts in psychedelics in the context of the show, right? So you're 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 my you're my expert witness. Uh, 27, 2018. What's changing in the world? Like I think again, some of my audience. I'm going to speak. I'm going to speak for people a little bit here. Psychedelics. Like, what are, you, are we talking about? Magic mushrooms? Are we talking about acid? We're we talking about that time I went to a school dance and I shouldn't have, but I did, and or I was at a bush party. I think for a lot of people, I think, and I've certainly had a lot of these conversations. People hear psychedelics, there is a hearkening to a past time and something that people have maybe grown out of or wh- whatever category it fits in. But there's a whole world that's evolving out there around psychedelics and how it can actually contribute to the betterment of society that I think is really cool. So I don't know, do you want to touch on that a little bit to really lay the stage of when people are still ad- adapting to the fact they spit out their coffee that we're talking about psychedelics on this podcast? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I guess what I would have to say is that um, it's been o- over the last decade, I think that it's become a lot more normal and commonplace for people to admit that they struggle with mental health, that, you know, depression is quite common, anxiety is quite common. And there's been a lot of anecdotal evidence over the last several decades that things like psilocybin mushrooms can actually relieve the symptoms of depression and anxiety. 
and um, there's been incredible pioneering work done by organizations like the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies out of California looking at um, MDMA to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. And so I think that the, you know, the world is becoming more connected. It's becoming less taboo to talk about uh, challenges with mental health and psychedelic medicines are just proving to be extremely uh, profound tools to improve outcomes. You said you referenced California. I've done some reading. This seems still to be happening globally. I know there's a lot of work in the UK that I've kind of stumbled upon in terms of clinical, which is what we're talking about here specifically. Your 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 business model is to supply the clinical needs for all of these trials that are kind of undergoing now to maybe essentially kind of rewrite the playbook on how these drugs can be beneficial, how these substances, I want to be clear, can be beneficial to what we all know is a rising problem and rising awareness to mental health. Correct. Yeah. So our, you know, the core business is to support drug development companies in their clinical research programs. And uh, while it's a relatively small market just for clinical research, once those products get approved for market, uh, then the commercial demand becomes much higher. And so uh, we, we are building a scalable facility that can kind of meet the immediate clinical research demand. Uh, but then forward looking, we'll be able to produce hundreds of kilos annually to uh, really support the the growing industry, I guess you can call it. And for our audience, this is very much, you know, Calgary, Alberta, Western Canadian centric. You guys are based in Calgary. So will this facility be here? Like, is this something that's going to be happening kind of on the ground in Alberta? Yeah. So we're building the facility in Northeast Calgary. Uh, we had formerly been operating out of the University of Alberta in partnership with a, with a biotech accelerator called Applied Pharmaceutical Innovation. Um, and so everything that we're doing is really trying to keep things as local as possible. I, I really, I really appreciate it. Cause often you hear about these stories and then you hear about, well, we have to build a facility, you know, somewhere else in the world because of regulations. And so just curious, like the research or some of these trends, wh- where's Canada kind of on this cycle versus the U.S. or maybe the U.K.? And, uh, you know, wh- wh- where do we sit kind of on, on this journey in terms of as these regulations start to slow, slowly, but sounds like surely change? So Canada is um, what I, you know, I would consider us very liberal currently in drug policy reform. Following cannabis regulations, I think that uh, it, there was almost this new, this next wave of psilocybin legalization or magic mushroom legalization, and people kind of saw an opportunity to take one plant medicine or, you know, I guess apply our learnings from, from legalization of one plant medicine and look forward to psilocybin, which is another plant medicine that, you know, hopefully has a path to market. Um, North America is definitely leading the world. I think that there's about 118 active or soon to be active trials in North America and Europe is kind of in second place with only 24 active clinical trials. Um, in the United States, there is kind of state by state or even, I guess, city by city, um, efforts to legalize or decriminalize psychedelic medicines, whether it's psilocybin or all plant medicines, um, but whether or not that is going to kind of trigger a federal reorganization or policy reform is, is remains to be seen because we haven't even seen cannabis legalization in the United States yet. So I was going to say Canada kind of took the lead on that one, and the U.S. is like you know anyone I know is in the industry is definitely looking south of the border as kind of the next big pop. But there's so many like from state to to federal jurisdictions. There's a lot. It's it's di- definitely it's different than Canada in terms of how things are going to uh, are unfolding down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And Canada has been quite forward looking. For example, Theracil has done some really incredible work advocating for patients who are struggling with end of life anxiety to access psilocybin um, right now in the form of magic mushrooms in order to relieve their their struggles. Um, and there's an, 
there's another movement that is kind of tied to the right to die campaign, which is uh, essentially if you have the right to die, you should have the right to try. Um, so, you know, for these patients who are suffering or are really looking to end their life, uh, there's a there's a movement to suggest that maybe they should actually be able to try psychedelic medicines first to see if they can kind of come to peace with the fact that they are going to die um, and, you know, and then not have to kind of rely on doctor assisted suicide. Um, and there's another local group in Calgary um, led by David Harder and Atma Clinic, who is also accessing Section 56 exemption. So there's some, you know, I think that it, it's it's interesting. Calgary is becoming this little hub in Alberta for psychedelic medicines. So interesting. I, I'm going to speak for myself. Not something you hear about. Like I think CBC picked up the story about what Atma was doing a few, uh, maybe a couple months ago. You hear these little pops of it and. I, I'm always shocked at you know you know dinner conversations. Not that through COVID, there's a lot of those, but sitting around with friends, even in a, in a socially distanced backyard setting. To be clear, uh, the concept around psychedelics, or the or even the more I think more commonly around microdosing, it's starting to come up more frequently in, in interesting cross sections of groups of people that I'm seeing. And often they have the well, yeah, I have my I was 18 or I was 17 or 20 mushroom story, and you know classic did too much, but you know I think we all have that story with alcohol somewhere along our journey as well, and starting to realize how to recalibrate with it and to hear about the economic potential impact of it is interesting because I'm certainly starting to see mainstream just everyday people that I quote unquote wouldn't expect whatever that means you know in all its glory and all its ignorance are talking about psychedelics in a way that just wasn't a conversation that was happening not even two years ago for me anyways yeah microdosing is something that really excites me um, you know I, I see there's this huge market opportunity um, to improve mental health outcomes but my own personal opinion is that there's like the bigger market opportunity in psychedelics, it really comes back down to wellness or betterment of the well. Um, and so, like you say, there are so many people in my networks who are actively seeking out um, psilocybin microdoses or LSD microdoses to use kind of in their own practice, not necessarily on a daily use or even like on a regular schedule, but just kind of when they feel called to, maybe they microdose for a few weeks or, or months and then kind of take a step back from it. And um, you know, it helps people with creative problem solving and with attention and energy and mood. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very, um, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of trying to encourage policymakers to consider, um, authorizing a, the development of a wellness market. When you think about cannabis, and again, I think anyone, if you're in business at all, it was hard not to be an observer of just like, wow, as this cannabis, this, this cannabis machine or cannabis wheel started, the flywheel started to turn. And clearly the medical, you know, I remember hearing some of the first like people almost saying it's unconstitutional to deny me access to this medicine that can then quote unquote help me. That seemed to go so quickly from that, you know, headline in the news to, okay, well, now we, medical you know, medical access and you can get a prescription. And I know people that went through that process and like literally if you could check one of 80 different symptoms, you could get a prescription. And then all of a sudden, boom, recreational was there. Is there the same kind of drivers just thinking about like kind of what are those outside forces and is there a big enough movement to, to drive psychedelics there as quickly as it felt like? And maybe for people that were on the drive to legalize cannabis, it, it has taken decades. It just feels like once it started to unfold, that fly, flywheel got spinning pretty quick. Can we see something specifically, you know, which ultimately leads to an economic economic opportunity, which, you know, this is a business focused podcast. But if people realize it's going to make their lives better, is that going to accelerate the flywheel? Like, do we have the right stakeholders at the table to change the laws? It's it's a really interesting question. And I think that I have to answer. I don't know. I haven't seen national polls. I don't know what public opinion is yet. And 
Um, you know, someone said this to me a couple of weeks ago that politicians are not leaders, they're followers. And ultimately they'll kind of defer consist- to their what constituents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I think until we start to see some really high quality, um, you know, independent national polls that, that suggest that the majority of Canadians want to see improved access to psychedelics, then, um, I get the sense that we're probably still quite a few years out, but like you said, in, in cannabis, once that, once that flywheel started spinning, it just picked up momentum so quickly. Um, I think that there's still a lot of stigma associated with psychedelic use. A lot of people still believe that, um, you know, they're dangerous drugs, that they're unpredictable, that people could cause a lot of harm if they got out to be kind of like a consumer packaged good. And so I think that the industry will kind of evolve first as more of a service-based industry instead of a product-based industry like, like cannabis. And then, um, you know, once there's a little bit more comfort and we're maybe a little bit more mature culturally than then maybe we'll start to see opening up of access to psychedelic products. But I, my, my intuition is that it's probably five years away, ten, five to 10 years away. Okay. Interesting. But you know, companies like yours at the, at the intersection of where the industry is now, like I'm not hearing, obviously once recreational cannabis got going, everyone you knew was like, had, was spinning up a cannabis company or was like securing leases and all those things were happening. But what I'm hearing now and you know, SciGen's role is to supply this global demand. The world doesn't need uh, 1500 side gens to be able to supply that demand and currently like just talking about where we are now in the cycle. So is, do you find there's competition? Like, is there other, is there other companies that you're aware of that are on a similar, like, is it a bit of a race to then be the preferred vendor to these labs? Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, there's like, there's some competition from existing contract manufacturers worldwide. I would say that the ones that kind of come top of mind are Onyx Scientific in the UK um, who supplied maps with their MDMA for their clinical research programs. They've supplied Compass Pathways with their psilocybin. Um, and I believe that they're supplying MindMed, their LSD. So Compass is definitely, or sorry, Onyx has definitely kind of established themselves as a leader. Um, but what is kind of unique about Sygen is that we're a dedicated, we intend to be a dedicated manufacturer of psychedelic medicines. We're not going to be offering a product catalog of, you know, other inputs into the psych- into the pharmaceutical industry, we're not going to be offering. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. okay. You know, precursors for plastics manufacturing or anything like that. So, um, our business model at the moment is fairly unique. We don't really see any other anyone else who's developing dedicated infrastructure for psychedelics, and it seems like most of the business opportunities are kind of focused on the on the service model. So, developing clinical infrastructure or more a traditional biotech play where they, you know, where companies want to develop like the next generation of psychedelic drugs. So whether it's a deuterated compound or whether it's a, you know, psychedelic without the psychedelic action, so to speak. Um, and, and they're, they're betting on drug development plays. So, um, for, so from a value proposition, what I'm hearing is, you know, you would you would come to SciGen because we do exactly this and we do it better than anybody because that's what we focus on. We have that exclusivity and that kind of laser focus in terms of being like, I don't want to use the word premium supplier, but we're not, this isn't an additional product line or a bolt on to a bigger facility. This is 100% what we're dedicated to doing. Yeah, exactly. And the team okay. that we're building around us is, you know, it's a world leading team of, of scientists with experience in psychedelic medicinal chemistry. Like our, our lead research and development chemist, Stuart Frescas, came from 20, more than 20 years managing a lab at Purdue University, um, under Dr. David Nichols, who is arguably the world's leading authority in LSD, uh, pharmacology. So, and Stuart in that lab has made 
you know, hundreds of different psychedelics. Um, you know, I, I believe that he actually produced the DMT that was used in Rick Strassman's kind of pivotal trial in the 90 that really restarted the psychedelic renaissance and manufactured psilocybin for Johns Hopkins and MDMA for MAPS early on. So, um, yeah, we're, we, we really are kind of building a, a team of world-class experts in, in psychedelic chemistry. When you get into a little bit of the history, and I, really, I recently, I think it was How to Change Your Mind Through Psychedelics, I was to do with Michael Pollan, and he went through a really nice kind of historical as he was doing his research for his own journey. And if <clears throat> anyone's curious, it's a, it's a, it's a good book. It's, a, it's, an, it's an easy read. It's, enter, it's entertaining and also kind of, it's a single individual's, you know, from a journalistic perspective's journey to taking psychedelics himself, but doing all the research first. When you hear the history of it, it feels like, you know, it was out there, it was mainstream, it was very, it was counterculture at the time, and they argue somehow how maybe even the position they took is what created some of the fear and got, caused the government to react the way they did, and there's some really cool ties into things that happened in Saskatchewan. Actually, Canada plays a role in the book quite significantly. So, but what I'm hearing is they, it kind of, it, it became illegal, it went underground, but it never went away, and there was all these individuals that have been quietly, the tw- I've watched a few TED Talks, and like this is like this has been a 20-year underground fight to get this back into the mainstream. And you mentioned the Renaissance, so that was in the early 90s that that happened. So, are a lot of these individuals that are still the thought leaders today? They never really stopped. They just had to come out of the mainstream. Is that what I'm hearing as well? Yeah, absolutely. And it was interesting because it was really a, a lot of people considered research in psychedelic medicine to be career suicide. Um, when I was when I was completing my bachelor's, I was looking to do a master's or a PhD. Uh, couldn't go to the United States, uh, because of a cannabis residue issue. Um, and so I was deemed ineligible. So I was looking for graduate programs in Canada and there was not a single chemistry professor in Canada that was willing to associate their research group with psychedelic medicines. Wouldn't, wouldn't touch um, it with a 10 foot pole kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And I wasn't really interested in studying anything else. So, um, just kind of had to go my own separate way. Interesting. And is that start, is that starting to change? Or like, I know there's still laws. Like, are are, you, are we seeing programs? If someone's listening to this and they're on that journey that you were on, you know, just now going, well, I want to look at a place where I can do this. Is that starting to shift? Because again, I was looking. You know, there's the, the money needed to develop these things, but there's also the talent and the people and the education to support it. Absolutely, it's changing. I mean, Calgary. I believe it was just last week. University of Calgary published a position to have a department head or a research head of psychedelic medicine in the department oh, wow. of psychology. That's really interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's you know, like I said, Calgary seems to become seems to be becoming a little bit of a hub of psychedelic medicine right now. Uh, there's another research group uh, that's kind of associated with uh, Magic Med Industries. Um, Led by Peter Ficini, who was a, who's a kind of a biotech legend, I guess, from Calgary. He created a company called Willow Biosciences and was doing, um, kind of, had a lot of research in, in opiate fermentation. Um, so yeah, Calgary is, is becoming this head and it's becoming more and more, um, interesting to research institutions around the world to have to develop a psychedelic focused, um, research program. Well, when you think of cities that have become known for certain things, oftentimes there's a university or a, a th- there's a thought leader often at the se- at the center of it. So to hear that the you know, U of C is playing some of that role and also looking to play a bigger role, I find that really interesting because biotech is an industry in Calgary that you know arguably I knew nothing about. But when you start talking to people, they're like, oh, no, we have a fantastic – the problem is we just don't necessarily have a lot of places for these highly skilled individuals to land. So they end up leaving our market. You know That always pains me right now when we're trying to look at economic transformation and our, and our super smart people. 
people are going somewhere else. So to hear that those opportunities are are, are coming and that you as like a head of psychedelics research, that's actually I just feels so mind blowing a little bit that that's still happening, right? I guess maybe get over it. It happened with cannabis. It, it, it can it can happen again. Uh, when you talk about the economic potential and you think about it's small now and this is five year and uh, you and I talked a little bit on our first on our on our first date our pre our pre call our pre chat about you know psychedelic tourism and you know the therapeutic and the counseling and so you've built your facility I I'm you know when your facility is up and running how many people would it employ just to give just for context so we we have about fifteen people on staff right now that are kind of working okay. towards the development and while we're while we while we build out the facility and while we wait for licensing. Um, we, so the facility is about 17,000 square feet and we're developing 6,000 into usable lab space. Uh, we intend to kind of, our phase two plans are for true commercial demand. So it would be manufacturing hundreds of kilos of psychedelics annually. Um, which sounds like a lot, but for something like psilocybin, a uh, hundred kilos is kind of enough to treat a million people with three doses a year. So it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's a reasonable amount, but, um, what we project forward is that if our facility is running and we have kind of two shifts that we would probably have about 60 people um, employed at the facility. And, you know, thinking of that, as you guys are at the start of this journey in terms of employment, economic impact, like contribution to the overall Something here. I'm going on a few tangents here. When you talk about creating these substances, are these synthetic versions of like? Are you physically growing mushrooms, or are you in a lab environment creating a synthetic version? Because some of the studies I've read about or dove into a little bit, they were synthetic psilocybin, not necessarily. I'll be blunt. Your buddy who grows mushrooms in his in his in his greenhouse to supply his personal personal need and needs of his friends. Are we thinking about two different things when you talk about the substance itself? Yeah, so there there are some groups that are focused on on mushroom growth and extraction and and kind of standardization of natural products. Sajin's uh, production methods will be entirely synthetic, so the lab will be uh, producing synthetic psilocybin. And you know, our bet for synthetics is really just that um, it's more standardizable. It's it's very repeatable. There's a lot of variation in natural products and and the downstream processing to clean up that product to to kind of like a pharmaceutically pure API. Um, would be a little bit challenging. And so we just, our, our belief is that the synthetic process is going to be preferred for, for medical products. But we are, you know, that being said, we're, we're supporters of psychedelic medicine, the decriminalized nature movement. So we're, we very much encourage natural products to, uh, to be adopted. And, and we understand that that will compete for market share eventually. Well, I appreciate you understand your audience and your audience is going to be in a clinical environment and they're wanting to create papers and position statements that are defensible. And if their product is a variable, well, then that kind of immediately erodes. And you read some of the studies that were done back in the 60s and 70s and there's the, the long list of why maybe it wasn't repeatable. Maybe uh, we don't even know if the doses were the same. Like, you know, you get into all that kind of mindset and that's clearly not the space that you guys are playing in. So, yeah, thanks thanks, thanks for clarifying. Just as, as anybody who's like, well, what are they making? Is this a, like, is this a green? house like what are, what are we trying to make, make a mental picture here but when you talk about you, you you get your established you things start to open up you're supplying these um these global you know trials the trials come out successful legislation starts to change how do you see it kind of unfolding you talked about maybe five years do you have a bit of a timeline in your mind of what that would kind of look like stage-wise from an economic perspective or maybe economic and access tied together yeah so Right now, I believe the earliest projections are 2024 to have a market authorization for MDMA, and that would be in the United States, and and that would be MAPS, uh, 
selling that MDMA product. I think the guidance from Compass Pathways is that psilocybin would not be more than a year behind, so 2024, 2025. And USONA and Compass are both kind of competing uh, to get that first product to market. USONA's focus is major depressive disorder, whereas Compass is treatment-resistant depression. Um, my, my hope is that... Um, when the FDA authorizes psychedelics for market, they're kind of admitting that there's this context in which drugs can be used safely, that the benefits outweigh the harms. Um, and I think that it'll become pretty challenging to, I guess, prevent access or to prevent, or to, I guess, it'll become challenging to argue that, um, that healthy individuals should not also have access because for me, it's all about preventative. It's, it's this idea of preventative medicine, right? Like why do we wait until people are, you know, down in the pits of despair and struggling with depression before we offer them a solution? Um, if we can, you know, develop some evidence that taking psilocybin or LSD could be prophylactically could prophylactically improve mental health outcomes long-term, um, you know, why would we as a society not kind of work towards that kind of an op- opportunity for people? Um, you know, there's that saying, an ounce of prevention is, or is, what is it, a gram of prevention is worth an ounce of cure? Um, <laughs> yes, we're going to get our measurements right. And it's so yeah. interesting because I think we start to speak of this triage nature of our Western and certainly global way we look at it. Like, you know, we wear seatbelts to prevent injuries, but yet we don't treat preventative health in the same way that we prevent. Well, now that you're sick, well, man, do we have a barrage of treatments that we have in store for you versus like our medical system can't sustain that. Like that there's lots of documentation around where we're, we're bending, we're breaking under our own weight of lack of ounces or grams or any measurement of prevention. <laughs> Once, once you're already depressed, we'll try to fix you. How about we just help you be healthy in the first place? I know it sounds so simple. You and I just armchairing and yeah. here sitting here chatting about it. Yeah. But do you think, you know, this is now you and I just philosophizing a little bit. I've noticed a trend, certainly with people in my circle. COVID, there's been a lot more, I think, time to be with oneself. <laughs> Less yeah. like, what's your next vacation? Where are you running to? How many appointments can you fit into your day? Like that did get evaporated on. I know a lot of people that have pursued different forms of whether it's meditation, uh, you know, it was the Wim Hof method, like so many friends that have been trying different things where they had a little bit more time, but they also had a, a less distraction. So I don't know, coming out of, and I've also, we've all heard lots of reports on the increase in mental health challenges, like the unspoken other side effect of this, these lockdowns. We kept people healthy while putting them in a really dark place. Curious your thoughts on even what's changing as a society coming out of COVID, like trying to find a silver lining, I guess, in this thing as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, like you say, right? I think that there, I think that the lockdowns have kind of, it's, it's almost like it's polarized people into one of two extremes. Either they have really started to struggle more severely with their mental health, or they've taken it as an opportunity to start new practices, pick up more healthy, you know, I know for myself anyways, like my diet improved so much in COVID because I was forced to make every single meal for myself and it was, you know, it reinvigorated my love of cooking. Um, and so, I think for a lot of people, it's done the same thing with their mental health and with yoga practices or meditation practices. Um, and I'm, it's my hope that the, the, on the other side of the extreme, the, the people who have really been struggling with mental health, um, because of COVID, that that will start to, um, I guess just add to the momentum to, to offer additional tools to support people who are who are struggling. So from that onset, from that from that perspective, and we all know that people will 
pursue black market or pursue opportunities, getting back to kind of how you see this thing maybe unfolding economically or even from an access, kind of what, what comes next? What comes at that 2024 or 2025? Is that, like you, you mentioned psychedelic tourism when you and I were chatting, I think off, mm-hmm. offline before, which kind of really stuck with me as an, inter- it's, it's an, inter- it's a colorful term in all of its, yeah. you know, in, in all of its power. But is, is the, what, what does that industry start to look like? Is it the counseling? Is it the retreat approach? Is it the, the therapist that now start to use this as part of their toolkit to, as you start to see it Un, kind of unfold and unravel uh, in, into society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know, I think that it will. I think it almost has to start through a medicalized pathway. So it will be doctors prescribing or therapists prescribing medicines to people who would really benefit from it. Um, and from there, I think that because there's necessarily has to be a context in which the benefits outweigh the harms. I don't understand how it would be. Um, how you could make an argument against a psychedelic retreat center that has proper controls in place and is managing, um, I guess, contraindications for people and is basically allowing uh, people without a diagnosable health condi- mental health condition from accessing a psychedelic. So in terms of psychedelic tourism, I could see retreat centers existing where, you know, you just basically need to go through, answer a questionnaire, um, maybe have a pre-screening um, uh, meeting with a with a facilitator and then you can go and uh and participate in a psychedelic experience and have that facilitator create a safe space for you and um and so one of our one of our um our director of clinical research Mark Hayden uh, who's the former executive director of Maps Canada uh published a paper I I want to say it was 2016 but it might have actually even been before that and it's all it's basically like a and I, a proposed framework for what psychedelic access could look like. And essentially it's, you know, it's, it's much like driving a car is very dangerous unless you know how to drive a car properly. And so we have to go through, you know, driver training programs and go and get licensed in order to drive a car safely. And that, that license is essentially our, our right to drive a motor vehicle. And it's a proof that we know how to do that safely and we're, you know, unlikely to kill ourselves or anyone else. Um, and, this same could be true for psychedelic medicines or psychedelic experiences that perhaps there's a three weekend course that you can take where the first weekend you learn all about. Um, and this is, uh, this is in Mark's paper is, is, you know, you, you go through a structured learning program where you learn how to manage a psychedelic experience. And then you would actually be able to be licensed to be able to conduct, um, um, I guess, a, or you would be able to hold space for someone to go through a psychedelic experience, whether it's yourself or your friend or, you know, a loved one. And uh, I think that that opens up interesting liability questions and concerns. And, and you know, I think that that would need to be addressed. But, um, but yeah, certainly I think that you, the framework could happen from, from medical to retreat centers to licensed individuals being able to conduct medicine ceremonies at their homes. And I'll be, you know, candid in saying, I, like, there's a, to to a degree, this is already happening. It's just happening in that, you know, in that in that space beyond the like, well, you know, is this really bad? Is this yeah, sure? Maybe it's illegal, but some people don't get fret too much about that. Other people do. And again, no no comment on on, on either. Uh, interesting to hear you, you talk about. And I think just to clarify for people listening, like we talked about microdosing earlier, which is a very small dose on a you know on a on a, on a cycle of maybe every couple of days to get some benefits psychologically. What we're also talking Talking about is a treatment level, or sometimes colorfully referred to as a hero's dose, where you might take a larger amount of the substance to then 
go through a therapeutic or go, go through an experience, like have a trip where you can go and go, wow, reassess maybe some of the connections in your mind and some of the things I've read about it. Yeah, v- very different categories. Like, like a lot of substances we have access to, there's different ways to use it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I, there's a lot of, um, something that I'm struggling with right now in the, in the emergence of this psychedelic ecosystem is that there are, uh, I, what I perceive as, um, as myths of prohibition that are being perpetrated by, by public market companies saying, oh, you know, microdosing isn't safe. We would need to add something to the microdose so that people wouldn't be able to take 10 of their microdoses and have a full on experience. And I just, I really struggle with that idea because there are so many other medicines that people are prescribed on a daily basis that can be abused just in the same way. Um, and, you know, there, there doesn't need to be a device or a technology that prevents someone from taking five times the opiate that they're prescribed or, you know, it's, um, yeah, so it's, I, I'm really excited and I think that the microdosing opportunity is a, is a great way to, um, to get these medicines into people's hands for, um, yeah, just for intentional ritualistic use. Um, and it's, you know, by and large, it already exists. There are dozens of online distributors that are selling microdoses. And my understanding is that there's even a, um, like a retail store in Vancouver on Hastings and Maine that if you go in and you can demonstrate that you need a prescription for an antidepressant, you can go in and buy their microdoses. So, um, where, where where else could it where else would the first one be really that's kind of the, <laughs> you know what I mean from that spot uh, no you're right and the, like I've talked to friends are like I'm like oh where did you get your mushrooms because I just went online I just ordered it and it showed up in a brown envelope it wasn't even a, wasn't yeah. even a big deal and you know every three to six months the site gets shut down and you get a, you get this like subtle email that says go to this new site and there it is with just a new logo or a new banner on it so you're right it is interesting uh, you know and I, I hope that. Uh, there seems to be a degree of tolerance there, or maybe it's just they don't have the resources to regulate. You know, I, I always there's that like I hope it doesn't go too far too soon that forces a crackdown and it and it just kind of unfolds. You know, again I'm just kind of playing my own scenario. You know, even how legalization in BC happened versus Alberta, and you know what was tolerated in BC in the gray market, but that the end then BC was slow to reach the same level of legalization that Alberta was in. So it's kind of interesting when you see how how we're treated, and sooner or later governments are involved. And what do you see any role? Or, you know, obviously Big Pharma love to be vilified. We love to talk negatively of them. But yet a lot of the benefits that we have in our world is because of things that Big Pharma has created. So I just want to play both sides. But they are portrayed as the big, bad, evil, money-grubbing control and squash these opportunities. Do you see them playing a role? Like it felt like in cannabis they were kind of in it, but then all of a sudden it just ran away from that so fast that it became this more, certainly in Alberta, a very entrepreneurial industry not controlled by the bigger players, which consolidation, I think it's moving more back in that direction. But, you know, we'll park that conversation. Yeah, I think that uh, Big Pharma is, uh, to to a degree, they're already playing a role. I mean, you know, Jensen, part of Johnson & Johnson, developed S-ketamine, which is a, a nasal ketamine inhaler for, um, I believe it's suicidal depression. I, I don't know, or maybe it's just, you know, major depressive disorder. I, I don't know exactly what the indication is, but it's, um, I guess the idea is that if you're experiencing, you know, severe suicidal ideation in a depressive patient, then this S-ketamine product can be used to kind of, reduce suicide suicidality and then and give you that time to go and see a therapist to to help kind of you know get your thoughts back under control um i think that you know maybe some of the resistance from mainstream uh or i don't know if mainstream is the right word but some of the resistance from the legacy psychedelic community with big pharma is maybe some of the business practices it's like the you know 
creating complex patent landscapes that prevent other people from being able to prevent smaller businesses from being able to operate in the space from, you know, creating price, basically pricing out um, the people that would really require or benefit most from these medicines, um, whether it's drug, whether it's because psychotherapy costs aren't covered. Um, so I, I could see big pharma getting involved. Um, it's just a, I think it's a question of what their motives and intentions will be and will they prefer the classical psychedelics or will they try and, you know, bet on the second gen psychedelic that has, you know, the psychedelic effects removed, which I'm a little bit skeptical of. Like I, um, I think that second gen psychedelics, while like it just to me, it doesn't seem like it's a psychedelic anymore. If you're removing the psychedelic effects, which doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to be efficacious. I just think that it's, um, you know, it's a different tool in the toolbox. So the story is yet to be told is kind of what, is what I'm hearing a little bit from, from you, from your perspective, but you guys yeah. clearly see, see the opportunity and like economically and also there's a need, you know, back to the basics of business. You found a customer group that has a need, not being serviced. You guys saw an opportunity and I really interesting. I love this little side, this little side, you know, subtext you're writing or that you've stated about Calgary being a hub for psychedelics and like this next wave of opportunity, which when I think about economic diversification in Calgary, psychedelics wasn't on my radar until up to a few minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's extremely exciting. I mean, there's already I think three different clinical groups. Um, you know, I'm I I would so there's three different clinical groups that are developing infrastructure. There's um, you know, SciGen that's developing manufacturing capacity, and then yeah, UFC and Magic Med are developing strong research um, a strong research ecosystem at the University of Calgary. So it's it's really exciting for the city. For financial opportunities, people listening, investors looking to go, how do I get involved in this? How do I, you know, take advantage without, you know, necessarily having to be in the business physically? Is, you know, obviously you guys are, you guys are a privately held company. Are you raising capital? What, 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 yeah, what is, have you been raising capital? What's that been like? Has there been like, have you been met with blank stares in the room or like what's been happening there from a, from a, from an investor perspective? Yeah. So it's been really interesting raising capital over the last year and a half, two years because I have not met a single investor in the flesh. I have not shaken their hand. I have other than the family and friends who are supporting me. Um, and so with COVID, you know, having all of our investor meetings and pitches over zoom, it's uh, it's created quite a, what I experience anyways, is quite a unique way to pitch a business. But um, there's so much interest, like, you know, something that SciGen is really passionate about is kind of, um, we actually originally intended to be a, a nonprofit and, um, or a public benefit oh, corporation. Okay. And we, you know, early on, we had some advisors saying, look, um, I, I get it, but the, you know, being a true nonprofit is going to be really hard to raise the kind of capital that you're going to need. So why don't you find a way to incentivize investors, but, you know, still give back. And so we've kind of got this social mandate where we want to donate up to 10% of our profits back into, um, into kind of two main buckets. One is, uh, equitable access and the other is, um, is, uh, like supporting research foundations and, uh, and other nonprofits that, like MAPS, that have, um, really created the, fe- the foundation for this emerging ecosystem. Just recognizing that all those companies exist on donations or have, you know, for example, MAPS, like they're getting MDMA to market and that has been entirely on donations over the last 30 years. They've raised, you know, more than 150 million US dollars to bring this um, to become a prescription medicine. So we just, we would really like to continue supporting those kinds of organizations. And so, um, you know, trying to find investors has been a little bit challenge, not challenging, but it's, uh, 
we, we just we've we've been looking for impact investors and typically uh people that are interested in psychedelic medicine love what we're doing they love the um they love the social mandate that we have or the ESG mandate that we have and um and yeah it's i mean it's it's really interesting how much opportunity there is in psychedelics now like hundreds and hundreds of million dollars have been raised across dozens of companies there's you know, many companies are going public. Sajin does have a plan to do an RTO um, in the later half of this year. Um, so earlier you asked about, you know, if we're currently raising capital, we are just wrapping up a convertible debt round that's preparing us for a, a $10 million RTO raise that we'll be doing. Um, certainly if there's interest, um, anyone with a with a broker uh, would be able to participate in that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's exciting. I think we've raised about $10 million to date, uh, maybe just a little bit more. And I was curious, have that, how much of those funds have come from even in Alberta, in Canada versus, versus U.S. or, or, or international investors? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I would say, um, I would say that the majority of that capital has come from within Canada. Um, and it's actually probably split 50-50. I'd say about $5 million has been from within Canada. And then we've got, um, about two and a half million dollars from the United States and two and a half million dollars from, from Europe. Okay, so mixed bag, but still, fifty percent respectively uh, has become from inside Canada. Because I've I've had lots of different you know startups in the show, and they're like, well, unfortunately, seventy percent of our investors are from south of the border. And yeah. then you get into the well, if we're going to invest in you, maybe you should come to Boston, or maybe you should come to you know wherever. And yeah. there, you know, sometimes there is a challenge there that I I've certain, again I've heard articulated to me that depending where your investors are, they sometimes are comfortable having you closer, or their networks and their infrastructure, which you can benefit from. It's not just the dollars; it's who they know, and you know the Although the, do you typically have like here's the money do what you do or do you have more of an, an active investor pool where people are contributing and giving some guidance and you know don't step on this landmine step over here kind of kind of thing that we all need as 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 entrepreneurs. Yeah, so I would say the larger investors have all been more um, they're interested in participating in the business. So you know they they all want to give us guidance, um, connect us with their networks, kind of build an ecosystem. Um, in the psychedelic medicine space, because they're not just invested in Psygen, they're invested in in clinic plays and and maybe raise the know. raise the raise the profile of the whole industry. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So is it uh, is it a collaborative industry? Because you know there's so few of you, and you're so as I say, you're fighting the common foe of legalization and per- permissibility, even by your custom, by the potential future customer, which is the, the general population. Is it pretty collaborative in terms of like we will all win if we get if we do this together versus ch- chipping away and fighting each other? It's a little bit bifurcated. I think that the patent strategy and IP, like because it's a biotech industry, there's um, you know there's this kind of existing philosophy that unless you have a really strong IP position, it's not worth investing in. And so there's this patent race where everyone's trying to make, you know, claims over what I would argue is, is either obvious or existing, um, technologies. And so it's, you know, I think that the patent race kind of makes it feel a little bit less collaborative, but then on the, on the flip side, there's things like the Canadian psychedelic association that is really trying to create a unified voice for the emerging industry in Canada um, that can kind of form a single lobby group to go to the government with meaningful legislation. Like, for example, um, I, I spoke about Theracil earlier, who is advocating on behalf of patients to get Section 56 exemptions. My understanding is that they've now treated 50 or 60 patients um, or received exemptions for 50 or 60 patients, but it, that creates a huge administrative burden on Health Canada because 
the minister has to approve every single one of those instances on on an individual basis. So I don't know how many kind of labor hours go into the minister or the minister's team, the health minister's team, reviewing those applications. And, and you know, so I think that the CPA is really looking to kind of unify the voice of the industry to work with government to try and make things more efficient for both parties. Um, so, yeah, all that to say, it's it's bifurcated, I think. Interesting. No, I, I appreciate it from your, the biotech industry and some of the, you know, the, the historical, you know, IP is where you get your value and those types of things. Is that also a little bit of a challenge that you guys are like, is, is there, a, just trying to understand, like, is there any other alternative to playing in that space? Cause it sounds like it could be a bit of a holdback where, like, like you said, we're trying to create patents on things that are somewhat obvious or somewhat already there. And just who's going to say that they own that thing that was already there. Is that a little bit of a hindrance being associated as, a, as in the biotech category versus being your own category over here? Maybe still to be determined. Yeah. I think that there's, um, there's definitely some hindrance. Like there's been some really great investors and, um, you know, who have passed on the opportunity because Saigen didn't have any active patents at the time. Um, and so now we've filed a, one provisional patent and we've got another that's going to be filed quite soon. Um, so we are trying to protect, you know, the moat that we have to a degree, but we recognize like, you know, the compounds that are, we have applied for a license for, um, include psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, mescaline, 2CB, all of these compounds exist within the public domain and their synthetic methods are well known. So, you know, really protecting our synthetic, well, protecting the compound is impossible and protecting this, the process is challenging unless we truly do create some, some innovative process. Um, and so our, our position is really, um, you know, we don't want to try and participate in this kind of blind patent race and just create a complex patent landscape. We want to innovate in the process of, of, or sorry, we want to, um, you know, yeah, I guess innovate just in the process of doing, and we want to recognize what innovations are going to be useful and then protect those innovations if we can and everything else. We're just kind of keeping a closely guarded trade secret. Interesting. So that, that patent race could actually contribute to maybe holding things back or not creating the same, the same degree of momentum if it was. But I do understand, like, there's large investments that need to be made. What are we investing in yeah. if then anybody can just take it and run with it? Like, you know, I, I get it. But when yeah. you start to think about the real goal of how do we create more accessibility to something that's ultimately back to core purpose, this will make people's lives better. You guys, you believe that. There's research that's coming out that's saying that. But if we can't get to market due to everybody fighting or legislation holding us back, we're never going to recognize the ultimate end goal, which is wellness. You said that you know, clearly yeah. right, right, out of the, right out of the game. Yeah. All the economic and uh, the more wellness you create, the more economic opportunity you have. Like they, it, 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 is all, it is all tied. Yeah. And you know, I think we've got a real interesting precedent with the cannabis industry, even though it sounds it is very different when I listen to you talk about just kind of what this is being approached with versus recreational cannabis, which yeah. again, it felt like once that, once that switch got flipped, that flywheel started spinning and getting bigger. Use the, use the, to overuse the flywheel and yeah. <laughs> um, so next step for you guys in, current, in terms of your journey, this has been great, Danny. You've been super informative, and I really appreciate your clearly deep passion and subject matter expertise on, on this topic. So in terms of where you guys are now, you said you've got an RTO coming kind of in, in, in the fall. Like where, where can people – now that you're on people's radar, what can they watch for? Yeah, yeah so um, you know, we're, we're a pretty quiet company. Like We're not hyper-promotional. Um, it's just kind of our strategy is to do, and then we'll, we'll release, I guess – major milestones as we, as we complete them. So, um, you know, we're kind of anticipating our facility to be built and operational, um, toward the end of summer, early fall. Um, we, based on our license application, 
um, and our licensing process. We do expect our license to be issued in 2021, but it's, you know, it's, it's always a bit of a black box when you're dealing with, um, with regulators and regulators timelines. And especially just in COVID times, like I'm not even necessarily sure if, um, an auditor will be able to come out and do a physical in a physical audit of our security infrastructure, um, or if it'll all be remote. And if it is remote, how does that affect timelines? So, um, but you know, the major milestones for us is really just getting this facility completed. Um, the nice thing is that there are unrestricted or uncontrolled um, compounds that we can start working on before we're licensed. For example, 5-MeO-DMT and ibogaine are not controlled substances in Canada. Um, so really in order to start production on restricted drugs like uh, psilocybin or LSD or MDMA, we do need to wait for that license. Um, but we're going to kind of get a get a leap start on some of the other compounds of interest um, in the fall. Other than that, we're planning to do like we've got a bit of a diversified strategy where we want to bring an LSD drug product to market. Um, and so we're starting to we're we're wrapping up the completion of an investigator's brochure for LSD. We're putting together a clinical trial application. So hopefully we'll be meeting with Health Canada before the end of the year and we can start enrollment into that um, into that clinical trial in early 2022. Um, otherwise, you know, in terms of investment, we're, um, currently kind of presenting some options to the board for when we're going to start marketing, uh, this RTO deal. So whether it's, um, kind of September 1st or whether we wait until we're, we receive our dealer's license from Health Canada, we just, there's some pros and cons to both options. So we need to, we need to weigh that out and, and see what is going to be the best option for SciGen. Interesting, but lots of SciGen. Just double confirming your website before I said it out loud. SciGen.ca. I'm assuming probably best place for people to get information. And yeah, there's a subscribe so people can follow and stay in tune. Yeah. And you know, hopefully this podcast got you on. You know, I, I know you guys are playing a little bit underneath the radar, but hopefully this gets uh, gets in front of a, an audience that's interested. And my goal always is that I give people new things to think about. They're like, yeah. I woke up this morning not thinking that psychedelics might be a, a you know a viable avenue for our diversification. Specifically, I, I love how fo- how focused you were on. You know Calgary and this kind of emerging hub here. That's really interesting. I don't, that that was news to me. So I appreciate yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. And hey, the more irons we have in the fire here when we talk about diversification, I'm uh, I'm I'm all in. I'm all in. I'm a full supporter. Yeah. So, um, Danny loved our conversation. Thanks, man. Like really good meeting you. I love what you guys are up to. I'm certainly gonna. You're on my radar now. And please, you know, stay in touch. Uh, you know, friend of the show. I'm a supporter. So let me know anytime we can help tell your story. I'd be happy to do it. Okay. Thanks so much, Tyler. It was a pleasure to be on. Thank you, sir. Have an awesome yeah. day. Same to you. Take care.